Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy-Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers, and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like where did your band name come from and who's your favorite Friends character. We're asking questions like why did your marriage fail? Where does love come from? Is God real? It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passions. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. Hello everyone, welcome to Sacred Tension, where we embark on the sacred discipline of asking questions. Beautiful. Do not adjust your dial. This is not Stephen Long doing the usual introduction. This is your favorite Appalachian Pentecostal gone rogue. This is (laughs) Donald Guffey, the one, the only, the gayer than Christmas. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) The official coming out. Uh, today is a little different. Today we have our beloved host in the hot seat. So I will be your little host for the day. Okay. Beautiful. Wonderful. So to so Stephen. Yes. Say hello. Hello. Mm-hmm. Um, How does it feel to be on the other mic for once? Very strange. Very strange. Yeah. So I. So. I have a list of questions from mm-hmm. the patrons. So this is an Ask Me Anything episode from my patrons on Patreon. You know, I was planning on doing this as a solo episode, and and I just can't do it yet. Like, <laughs> I solo episodes, just talking for hours into a mic, alone in a room, pretending that you're not insane, <laughs> is incredibly hard for me. And so I'll get there. I'll, I'll get there at some point, and I will be able to do solo episodes. But like right now, I just have to sit down and write a whole script when I sit for me to read and perform when I when it's just me at the mic. That's the difference between an introvert and an extrovert, isn't it? I could do this all day long, and I fully embrace the fact that I'm insane. So, <laughs> right. So I'm also an only child. So talking to the walls is not a new thing for me. <laughs> so. So Donald is here to ask me the questions. These are questions that I have collected, but I actually haven't really thought much about. So these are kind of fresh answers. I might be full of shit. This is less an answer and more one side of conversation. So in no way uh, are Donald and I experts in anything. We are just conversation partners uh, with you, the world. And so also, please, if you want to support this show, if you've been enjoying it regularly, if you look forward to the show coming out every Monday or Tuesday, sometimes it's late, uh, but ideally Monday, if you find yourself looking forward to it every week and uh, want to support it more tangibly, then please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for a dollar a month or five dollars a month, you will get a separate 
patrons-only podcast called The House of Heretics. It's so. just as good. <laughs> well, well, thank you. It's <laughs> kind of a hot mess. It's me and Justin. Uh, sometimes others. <laughs> sometimes others. Yeah, Donald has been a guest on House of Heretics and uh, slowly building the Patreon community over there. So if that interests you and if you want more engagement with me and you want more content and if you want to see this show thrive, then please consider being a patron and you can ask me questions which i will answer periodically on sacred tension it is very well worth it i am a patreon myself and it is money well spent well i'm i'm glad you think so (laughs) (laughs) so are we ready for the questions i guess so are we ready for the truth tea to be spilled in all of its glory i guess so okay i i mean yeah let's (laughs) let's do it question number one comes to us from timothy who is a Patreon. As a matter of fact, all of these questions are from Patreon members. So sign up if you want to know the real deal, people. <laughs> if you want to know what really makes Stephen tick, as if we could ever know that for sure. I really edit myself on the Sacred Tension show. If you want to see me being the full queer trash queen <laughs> that I am in person, then you need to listen to House of Heretics. See, I feel like you need to write a country western song. Yeah, <laughs> being a queer trash queen. Yeah, called Queer Trash Queen. Well, yeah. you know, it's funny because every... so. People have often told me that going from my blog to my podcast is a jarring experience. I can understand because that. Because my blog is much more eloquent and much less profane. And then they hear my podcast and they're just mortified. And I and I have to remind I'm trying to, you know, I've, I'm I'm like editing out more f bombs <laughs> now in in post production, like trying to make it a bit more palatable, palatable. But that really is the way I talk. Like that really, it is, truly is. That really is just the way I am in person. Like I'm queer trash, and that's just the way I am. And it sounds so natural when you do it. You say now that I'm a little bit more liberal and free and out i do try to slip in a curse word every now and again but it sounds funny when i do it it sounds forced (laughs) whereas i am i am fluent and trash (laughs) nothing wrong with that all right well let's let's move on to the first question first question what what is one aspect of your faith that you continue to maintain after going through deconstruction um I actually think that there are quite a few aspects of my faith that I maintain. I that's a really great that's a really great question, isn't it though? That's a really great question. I think first and foremost the thing that I maintain is a love for the person of Jesus. And you know, my my theology about who Jesus is, who Jesus literally is has shifted quite a bit. But Jesus is still kind of a central image, a central symbol in my life. And so that's one reason why I still call myself a Christian. As much as as much as I've changed, as much as my faith has changed over the past, you know, two years, three years, what I'm often surprised by is how much hasn't changed. You know, and I think that's really the most extraordinary thing to me is how much hasn't actually changed for me. You know, I now call myself a non-theist. I joined the Satanic Temple, which I've talked quite a bit about in other episodes, and I've had uh, I've had leaders of TST on the show before to talk about that. My morality has really changed. I'm I've rethought just about every aspect of my life, and um, 
you know, I now call myself kind of a primary, I call myself like an open materialist or a hopeful materialist. Like my, my, my default mode is that there's just material stuff. There's just the material world. And after I die, probably nothing will happen. But I'm still very open and hopeful to the possibility that there's more and I want there to be more. And so I'm, I'm much more skeptical. I'm, I'm much more humanistic. I'm much, so a lot has changed, but what often amazes me is just how much, how, just how little has changed as well. For example, I still pray, I still experience God uh, somehow. I still speak in tongues. You know, that's that's a practice that was wired into me at a very young age. And so that those patterns are still there in my brain and I can still speak in tongues and I still enjoy it. It's still a lovely experience. I still go to church. I'm still involved in a church. I I still pray. And I think most, oh, and also I still love the Bible. So I think the two biggest things that really have not changed, my love for the person of Jesus, Jesus as this figure who represents radical peace, ego death, who uh, laid down his life and then was resurrected. And that image is such a powerful symbol to me that no matter how far out my my theology or my faith or whatever may become, that I think will always be a center for me, at least as far as I can as far as I can see. And then I also still really love the Bible. I'm often horrified by the Bible. I'm often traumatized by the Bible. It's a horrific book in many places. But, you know, for the years in which I was so battered by the church uh, as a queer person, the Bible became my refuge. The Bible became the place where I worshiped for many years. And so this was when I wasn't going to church. This is when I wasn't really connecting with other Christian communities. But I still had the Bible. And so my form of worship, my form of prayer was to simply read the Bible and pray through the Bible. The Bible is horrific, and I'm kind of morally opposed to a lot of what's in there. But I think because of that positive association of the Bible is actually a safe place for me. It was It's a private, safe thing for me. I still retain that love for Scripture. And now, you know, that love is, is I think, you know, I'm fascinated by the story in it. I'm fascinated by the history. I'm fascinated by the symbols. And it's part of our heritage. It is part of our, it, it is our lineage as Christians. And so regardless of whether we think it's moral or immoral, regardless of whether we think it is true or not true, we still have to understand it. Absolutely. I love that answer. Hopefully Timothy will too. The thing, I, I'm, I'm very much with you when it comes to the deconstruction and the faith thing. Mine is a little different, and we'll get into that in probably another episode. But it definitely when it comes to the Bible, you'll pro- you're probably more engaged with it than even I am. Uh, the, the way I put it is that when it comes to my relationship with the Bible, we are currently in couples therapy, but on speaking terms. <laughs> yes. And uh, you mentioned being morally outraged by things in the scriptures, and I think we're supposed to be. You know, one yeah, of, yeah. One There's of the, something yeah. wrong with us if we aren't morally outraged by what's in scripture. Absolutely, and one of the things that I've carried over now that I'm officially a seminary dropout. Is, <laughs> yay, yay, <laughs> reject, dropout, whatever. It's uh, 
you know, one of the things that has always struck me is how it's always, even in evangelical circles, it's been pointed out that one of the unique things about the Bible, as opposed to maybe other religious texts and mythologies, is they purposely, the writers of the scripture purposely put in the uh, the bad and the ugly mm. with the good. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, even though we that's acknowledged in maybe evangelical higher education, it doesn't trickle down yeah. to where it's like you don't understand the point of the Bible talking about genocide is so you will be morally outraged about it. Right. Well, I think also I my view of Scripture is that it isn't a book about God. Mm-hmm. It's a book about our ancestors struggling to understand who and what God is. I totally agree with that. It is, And that is how I see the Bible. And so I do not believe it's infallible. Mm-hmm. I do not believe it is God-breathed. Uh, I really like what Science Mike says in Finding God in the Waves. He says, the Bible is inspired by God in the same way a love song he wrote for his wife in college is inspired by his girlfriend. It's it's inspired in that way. It is a, it, it is about humanity writing about God and struggling to understand who God is. And we have a lot to learn from that, and we have a lot to learn from their mistakes, and we also have a lot to learn from what they get right. And, you know, there are these kind of glimmering, incredible moments where where justice shines through and it's just blindingly beautiful and i think of you know the book of galatians and i think of uh 1 corinthians 12 and uh, parts of the gospels and moments when they hit on a vein of something that feels truly extraordinary in spite of all the darkness in spite of um, all the ugliness of that time period. Yeah. I love that. Very good for this time of year. Uh, I don't know when this will air, but right now it's right before Christmas. So we're still, if you follow Christian symbolism, we are in the Advent season. And to me, that that's one of the main themes of Advent is that in the midst of darkness, that's where we find God. That's where Absolutely. Emmanuel shows up, God with us. Absolutely. Shall we move on? Let's move on. Okay, the next question comes from Rachel, another patron. Oh, this is interesting. I want to know this story, too. (laughs) Uh, How did you get into yoga? Well, okay, so for those who don't know, I am also a yoga teacher. I teach three classes every week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And most of what I teach is very gentle, therapeutic, and meditation-based. And and that's on top of my full-time job managing a grocery store. So even I could do it, is what you're saying. So everyone can do it. Everyone can do it. Yeah. So my philosophy with yoga is to teach a class that everyone will eventually need, be it a super athlete or someone who smokes three packs of cigarettes a day and is dying from lung cancer or someone who is struggling with addiction or someone who is very depressed. You know, Mm -hmm. everyone is going to need that kind of care and love and gentleness and, and restorative practice at some point in their life. And so my goal is to is to create a class that everyone from super athlete to recovering alcoholics <laughs> are going to need at some point. So I got into yoga, I don't even, I think it was my junior, sophomore or junior year of college. I think it was my sophomore year of college. And so that would have been when I was like 22, 22 or 23. That seems like a, a millennia It ago, is. A, it feels it. like a millennia ago. And I had a therapist at the college who recommended that I do yoga because I was just so 
unbelievably stressed out. I was a music major, vocal performance major, which is a brutal degree, just absolutely awful, brutal degree. On top of that, I was in the closet, uh, or, or not, I wasn't in the closet at that point, but I was sorting through my, my sexuality and feeling very isolated in that. And I was dealing with uh, PTSD from a shooting that I was in. And I've talked about that on my show and on the blog and on Matt Langston's show, Eleventy Life. And <clears throat> so I, it was it was a very, very, very dark time. And I just had, you know, epic levels of anxiety, just crushing levels of anxiety. And what ended up happening, my therapist suggested that I do yoga to help me relax. And so I went to this class at a local gym with a wonderful teacher. And it was a revelatory experience for me because it felt like for the first time in years, I was actually able to relax. I was actually able to just be and feel like that quiet in my mind. And there was something about the combination of the shapes and the breath and the meditation and the flow and the music. And there was something about it that felt very sacred to me and, and very almost ritualistic to me. And I knew during that first class that, that this is what I wanted to do. Like I knew in that first class that I wanted to become a teacher. And so I did. And uh, then several years later, I got certified with Martia Rackman, who's just one of the most extraordinary teachers, um, yoga teachers. She's the author of the Yoga Touch Method. And she's just simply one of the best teachers I've ever met in my existence, in my life. And so I got um, my teacher training with Martia, and I've been teaching for about four years, kind of nonstop it's since. It's been that long already. It has. Yeah, well, okay, so John and I got together. John and I met in... After you got certified. Certified, exactly. And John and I just had our four-year anniversary... Happy anniversary. Thanksgiving in November. Thank you. Yeah, it's been four years. I haven't fucked it up yet. People, um, if ever... <clears throat> If ever we can get John on this podcast, you will see that they are the most adorable couple. <laughs> He's also definitely the the mature one in the relationship. <laughs> that I have ever... I, I think from the minute you met him and I finally spoke to him for the first time, I'm like, Stephen, don't F this up. Yeah. So Miss Ida, Miss Ida Carolina, <laughs> queen of the Appalachians, fabulous drag You still queen. need to take me to one of her shows. Yeah, she's great. She's one of my best friends. She's She was was a guest in one of my early early shows back in like early 2017 mid 2017 she um I, I remember I called her up when I first met John and I was just gushing about him and her words were wow well he sounds really amazing well in the words of RuPaul good luck and don't fuck it up <laughs> and you haven't and I haven't yet <laughs> no and at this point after four years I think you've pretty much shown each other who you are and if you've not done that yet if you've not effed it up yet I don't think you're going to well I mean it, it's always it'll it'll be an ongoing yeah work that's a it's four it's years is a long work. time for a gay relationship well let's not you know <laughs> stereotype gay relationships too much <laughs> but 
Um, for me, it's a long time. For me, it's a very, very long time. <laughs> I won't speak about. I won't. Of course, I we won't, won't do that. I won't say that. That's true for other. Just gay special note before but people come for us. We're both gay, so we are both fabulous. So yeah, John is. I don't know how we got onto this this sidetrack this yeah. rabbit trail but no john works in suicide prevention he is uh, a former jesuit novice we met just shortly after he left the jesuit novitiate and he's an extraordinary person and i would love for him to be on the show at some point but he's also kind of very very shy and soft-spoken and he's a wonderful person but not not a very public extroverted person he's in the perfect uh well i won't say that's a perfect position because that's a very hard position but for his personality i mean i know as a very overt extrovert who is just zero to a hundred all the time (laughs) whenever i'm around him and he's just like hi donald and i'm just like (sighs) yeah he has the most calming demeanor of anyone i've ever met let's assume okay so coming back on yes (laughs) coming back um, to yoga we can gush about my partner (laughs) all day long there's a story that you told me i don't know if you recall it now for the listeners that don't know uh, ida danielle myself uh, that have been on the podcast, we have been mute friends with Stephen for for Ida and Danielle most of his life. Yeah, and for, for years. Me, we're and going years. on a decade. Yeah, for years and years and years. We've we've kind of had this little heretical circle of queers and ladies, and yeah, it's a perfect circle, really. But I recall, and I th- I can't remember if you were doing your teacher training at this point or not, or if you were just you know deepening your practice. Uh, I had called and we were talking and you said that you, this and this will go in with future questions as well, that you had kind of a spiritual moment doing yoga in regards to your sexuality, where you said that while you were doing your practice, the the verse in scripture come up, what I've called unclean, what I've called clean, no one can call unclean. You know what? I, I, I wish I'd written this down because I actually don't remember that anymore. <laughs> But yes, I, I, you saying that I vaguely remember it. Yeah, I and and I do remember it being. I mean, this was years ago, so I I do remember it being a really really powerful experience at the time, and just you know like another step forward to accepting myself. But I don't remember the yeah. details of it. But I, I pointed, I bring that up because it's it's interesting that probably an unthought about side effect yes. of your therapist of doing yoga was that not only were you able to relax, but you were able to then move through yes. questioning your sexuality. Exactly. And it's amazing how things can do that. And I'll turn so a couple of small follow-up caveats for those who are whose interests are are peaked and ears are peaked and are like that sounds like something that i want to do too maybe quickly take us through the process of what it takes to be a yoga teacher to become a yoga teacher well so i did the first step is to find a really reputable studio uh, and a really reputable teacher. So there are a lot of teachers, or there are a lot of studios that don't that don't have a very rigorous process. And I think that this is becoming better because kind of the yoga community is slowly cleaning itself up in a good way. You know, I I think that's slowly happening. And so uh, the first thing to do is to do your research and find out what really what you want. There are different teacher trainings with different emphasis, 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 whatever. Um, There there are different uh, studios that have 
uh, a different focus for their teacher training. And so I did one that focused that that focused that focused on anatomy and physiology as well as therapy. And so I'm not a therapist, I'm not a physical therapist, but it, the teacher training was here's how you can kind of do you know, make sure people don't hurt themselves. Make sure that here here are little things that you can do to help people. And big emphasis on meditation, the benefits of meditation, how to teach. And, and so I got a really rigorous education. It was one of the most intense courses that I've ever taken in my life. And it lasted for a year and lots of reading, lots of practice, lots of incredible lectures. I mean, it, so they, so my studio did a really incredible job. So, but not all studios are like that. Not all studios are that rigorous. And so you really have to find a place that has good standards of rigor. So do your research, talk to people who've been through the class. You know, you don't want something that's just a week long teacher training. You don't want that. You don't want something that is just a month-long teacher training. You want something that is much more immersive and and rigorous so that when you do end up teaching others, you won't hurt them because you, you have to understand that you can really, really, really hurt people if you don't do yoga correctly, if you don't teach correctly. And you have to know what warning signs to look for in your students. You have to be able to navigate around their limitations. And in order to do that, you have to get good training. So that's the first thing I would say. You have to also do not teach if you haven't been certified. You have to be certified to teach. I mean, you don't have to be. There's no law that says that you don't have to be. Or there's no law that says you have to be. But being certified through, through something like the Yoga Alliance means that you do have some rigorous training behind you and you will be able to and and students can basically trust you to not destroy their bodies. So a lot of it just has to do with care. A lot of it just has to do with knowing that you aren't going to hurt people when you teach them. Also, read a lot about it. Read the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Read BKS Iyengar and then practice regularly. Those are the most important things. And the second one, given with how you were raised as a Christian, particularly. Hello, kitty. <laughs> Wednesday uh, yeah. has joined us. Uh, yes, um, <clears throat> particularly a charismatic background. Mm. Where the what were some? Did you have some misgivings going into yoga? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Not really. You know, I felt pretty safe with it. I just did not have. I didn't have the blocks that a lot of people have with from a Christian perspective with yoga because I kind of understood innately. That if this thing, and this is when I was very much more in kind of the Christian, evangelical, charismatic world, I kind of understood intuitively that if this thing works, which it does, then it works because God made it that way. And the fact that the Hindus discovered it first says nothing about whether it works or not, <laughs> you know? Very true. You know, and and so that, I didn't have any hangups, but I ran into a ton of people who did. Um, what is that? It must be... Um, a a vehicle. A truck. Sort, okay. Yeah. It sounded like a jet. And I was like, they're coming. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think the biggest problem was not my own issues with yoga, but the community around me having issues with yoga and being very nervous about it. Yeah. Oh, another thing, you have to have liability insurance. <laughs> Absolutely. Get liability insurance. I mean, also understand yoga is not a money-making venture. 
like you're not going to be making much money off of it. Chances are it's it's very like this. It is a service. You're going if you do yoga, you're going to get into it as a service and you're going to make very little back. And so I really see yoga as my public volunteer work mm-hmm. <laughs> basically i do get paid for it and that is nice but it does it definitely does not break even right all right so transitioning from that to a complete to a, a transition question ha ha okay <laughs> and then this could be its own episode and I, i'm pretty sure it probably has at some point okay uh this is from rachel how slash what made you transition from side b to side a I'm vacillating. Oh, I like that word. I'm vacillating from side to side, so this would be helpful. Oh, my goodness. Um, So for listeners who don't know, in gay Christian lingo, side A means the belief. And this terminology was coined by Bridges Across the Divide, which is now a defunct website, um, and it was picked up by the Gay Christian Network, now the Queer Christian Fellowship, by Justin Lee, the founder, to kind of frame these two different opposing theological sides. So, uh, And now it's just kind of become common vernacular in the gay Christian world. So side A is the belief that um, homosexuality is morally equivalent to heterosexuality. So whatever you believe about heterosexual relationships, they apply just as much to straight relationships or to gay relationships, that marriage that same-sex unions, et cetera, et cetera, are holy and blessed by God, just as with straight people, basically. And then side B is the belief that while you may not have chosen to be gay and while you may not change it, so this is different from ex-gay, ex-gay being the belief that you can and sometimes should ask God to help you work through the wounds that caused you to be gay and to revert back to a natural heterosexual state. Literally to pray the gay away. Literally to pray the gay away. Uh, So this is different from that. Side B is the belief that while you did not choose to be gay and you probably won't be able to change it, it's still sinful. Now, there's a ton of spectrum in there. There are like little tiny steps theologically, all the way from side B to side A and beyond, (laughs) you know, okay, so it's much more complicated than just these two binaries. But so that's the basic idea behind side A and side B. So I was first ex-gay, and then I became side B, and now I'm firmly side A. The process took years, and it was very, very hard. And um, I've written quite a bit about this. I think most of all, I can, you know, I can get into the theology behind it. I can get into the theological arguments for it. But honestly, part of my healing now has been to just let myself forget the theology. I don't think about it. I've given away all my books on the theology. I've given them away to people who need them, who are in that point of their life right now. And now I feel like my job is to just live fully. And so I get up in the morning now, every morning, I kiss my partner, I make coffee, and I go and live my life. The gay agenda. I go and live the gay agenda. <laughs> and, you know, I go to work, I work on this podcast, I read books, I I, ha- I go run, I teach yoga, and I have a ton of interests now outside of this topic. And part of the healing process for me has been to just let myself forget the theology to just let it seep away and not let it concern me anymore because it was a vehicle. It got me to the point where I am now. And now I believe that the greatest testimony, I I believe the greatest witness for gay people 
is to just live a full life, to just be fully happy, to live a full life. That's where I am now. I, I think, be first and foremost, above and beyond the theology, what there were two things that really pushed me into side A. One was the toxic effects of the theology itself. One was the toxic effects of, of side B, of the conservative ethic, where when you are a young person tr- trying to basically tell yourself, I can't have sex, but this goes beyond sex. This goes into partnership, especially for, you know, there are some people who have celibate gay partnerships. That's not for me. I tried that and it was a total disaster. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Donald was there for that. (laughs) And realizing that, yes, you know, sex may not be the whole of a relationship, but if I'm going to have a relationship, then sex is going to be a part of it. And therefore, if I can't have sex, I can't have a relationship. My real, my real heartache had to do with not having a family, with not, have, with not being partnered. And no amount of fellowship, no amount of friendship could really cure me of that, uh, could really cure me of this need for partnership of which sex is just a part, but is still an, a significant part. So that broke me. You know, looking into the future as a 20, early 20-something And late, you know, late teen, early 20s, looking into the future and basically saying, you know, I'm going to be I'm not going to allow myself to have a partner when I don't feel like I can make that choice, when I don't feel like I can do that. That's crushing. And there's also the issue of just self-loathing. There's there's, you know, there just so much piling on top of you when you're working through this. And it eventually got to the point where I realized I don't have the choice to be side B because this was taking such a psychological toll on me. This was killing me. I don't have the choice to have a conservative ethic. It's Or I do have a choice, but it's between my theology or my life. It's between my theology and me just, you know, self-destructing. And that can sound overly dramatic, that can sound snowflakey, that can sound whatever, but it's a reality that many people live through. I have very broad concerns about the conservative ethic, and one is the consequence of essentially mandatory celibacy. I mean, we can soften the terms some. We can say, oh, it, you know, it, you, whatever. I mean, I've, I've heard it kind of backpedaled and it softened is what it some. Is. But I, at the end of the day, if you believe that homosexuality is sinful, it's mandatory celibacy or you marry someone of the same sex or, or, or you marry someone of the opposite sex, I mean. That's what that means. It is mandatory if you are within that theological framework. And I really worry about the broad social implications of that. What And I've talked, a, I spent four episodes ranting about this in my Revoice series So yeah. with Timothy Wilde. So you can go back and listen to all that. I, I really worry about the social consequences of telling an entire group of people the size of a small country that they cannot have sex, that they are barred from marriage, that they are barred from... And I think that that just has uh, ethical, I think that's an ethical disaster. So, and I, and that played out in my life on a personal Mm -hmm. level. And so it got to the point where it's like, okay, 
I just have to choose. I just have to live my life. And then, fortunately, I had a very good friend, a, a Presbyterian pastor who is also himself gay. He had recently been kicked out of the PCA, the, a, a conservative Presbyterian denomination for coming out as gay. And he walked me through his theology. And that's what did it. That was the moment that I was able to suddenly be free and the theology, I couldn't just make the choice. I had to have the theology to click into place. That, because the theology really is a significant part of a Christian's identity. And without the theology component. So that was one bit. The other thing was I couldn't live in, in conflict with my heart anymore. And, and I was really in conflict. I was really, really in conflict. And I just couldn't... My heart told me that it was right and saw no reason for it to be wrong. And yet I was forcing my mind to agree. I, I was forcing my heart to agree with my theology. And I had this very deep cogn cognitive dissonance. And that, that also had a lot of negative consequences. But anyway, we need to move on. But, but that, I think, is the simple answer. And I've written a lot about it. I also, another uh, crucial book that really helped me was uh, James Brownson's Bible, Gender, Sexuality, which I think is the bar for affirming theology. It is absolutely brilliant, and I recommend that everyone read it. Right. And I know very quickly for me, what changed my mind was actually, I was an ally long before I come to terms with my own sexuality and came out, was watching you go through that, to be perfectly honest. Mm, yeah. was I remember some some dark conversations. Yeah. And I remember just, I don't remember if I verbalized this or I just said it inwardly because it's been so long at this point, I don't remember. But I'm like, I don't care at this point if it's right or if it's wrong. I just don't want you to die. Yeah. And so at that point, I was like, because I wasn't, may not have been theologically there yet, but I was like, this is killing him. Yeah. And I would rather see him in a partnership. Yeah. That was what he needed than to see him die. Yeah. And so for me, it was, and this is, of course, not to discount, little caveat, you know, this is not to discount people on the ace and aromantic spectrum, the asexual spectrum. Oh, absolutely not. celibacy nor, is a way of life. Nor, yeah, nor, I mean, no, this is not to discount celibacy at all. Right. But the cho people have to be able to make that individual yes. choice for themselves. When you, the problem I have is not with the celibacy bit, it's with when you make that the norm and you say everybody has to live that. Yes. Because that's not for everybody. Here's here's the thing. Theology is a public health issue. Yes. Ideas is. are a public health issue. Ideas don't exist in isolation. And so what we believe have tangible consequences in the world. There's no divide there's no, you know, platonic division between idea and and society or idea and how we live. It it's all one. And so, you know, I I find that a lot of what I do is trying to break down the boundary between ideas or theology and lived experience and the consequences on on society. And there are, my view, my personal belief is that there are certain ideas that are more destructive than others. And I think personally that side B is one of those more destructive ideas. This next one's a doozy too. Okay. As an ally, this is from Grace. As an ally, what things can I be more aware of or act against that make me complicit in a system that oppresses the LGBTQ community. Oh, goodness. Uh, 
There is a lot of work going on outside. Uh, yeah, sorry if you can hear the uh, construction going on out back. There was a hush in heaven for half for the span of half an hour. <laughs> uh, the first thing that comes to my mind yeah. is listen. Absolutely. So also understand the way certain words make people feel. And yes, you still have freedom of speech. You can say whatever you want, but it's really just a matter of, it's a matter of take very seriously. And this is not to Grace. I know Grace. She's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person. She's an absolute delight. But just to people in general, when it comes to LGBT people, understand, how do I want to say this? If you value relationship, understand that relationship always requires a sacrifice of us. And understand that relationship is always a contract of some kind. And so if you value your friendship with LGBT people, understand that there are just certain things you shouldn't say. If a trans person asks that you call them by their preferred pronouns, call them by their preferred pronouns. And if you want to make a fuss over that, knock yourself out but you'll probably lose that friendship. And so it's a matter of what's more important to you. Is friendship, is connection more important to you? Or is, you know, putting in your word more important? And it's your right, do what you want, but one can really severely hurt people. And I'd say also make the effort. And sometimes that's all you need to do. And I, uh, speaking of which, I have a very good friend that was a friend that is in Cleveland, whom when I met them, they identified mostly as cis. Cisgender, for those cisgender. who don't know. Meaning you identify with the sex you were uh, biologically born as. But then through time and contemplation and self-discovery came out as non-binary. So that, for those that don't know what that is, that is a identity on the trans spectrum where the best way I've heard it is if you envision a bridge and on one end is male and on the other end is female, hmm. tr- uh, non-binary individuals choose to stay and live on the bridge. Yes. So they often will pick pronouns that are neutral, like they and them. Yes. And when they came out as non-binary, I and I still do misgender the pronouns. Yeah, me too. On a it's, regular it's, basis. It's easy, but we have to make an effort. And again, there's that... And I apologize yeah. when I fuck up. Like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I will try to do And they'll correct better. you and you fix it and you move on. Yes, because you they, gotta put in an effort. You put in the effort and that rela- you listen and that relationship is there and they know you're not doing it on purpose. Yeah. So, and the other is don't freak out when it happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, okay. Also, just be okay with, with discomfort. So I met with the, with the chaplain... This week, so as of this recording, I I met with the chaplain of a very conservative college to talk about this because she wanted to talk about how how she can better serve her LGBT students in the college. And I I told her what I tell everything. I'm like, I have four pieces of advice. One, really engage with your gay friends, with your LGBT friends. Be kind. Get to know them. You know, embrace them. You know, get get deeply involved. And if they're willing, you know, not so there will be some LGBT people who won't want anything to do with you because of how they've been hurt, how they've been traumatized. And that's okay. Don't take it personally. But get to know LGBT people. 
two, read and learn as much as you possibly can. Read as much as you can. Study as much as you can. Three, be in it for the long haul. Don't wimp out. Do this over the over a long period of time, let it take years, let it take decades, because guess what? We don't have the opportunity of checking out. And so the very least that you can do is to stay committed. The very least that you can do is to not check out of this issue. So keep learning. You have the opportunity you have the opportunity to check out, but we don't. And so one way that you can stand in solidarity with LGBT people is to just not check out. To, to not just say, okay, it's settled, I'm going to live my life now. It's never settled. It's never, this is an ongoing cultural thing in the church, in the wider world. And justice towards LGBT people is ongoing. And the very least that you can do is to stay committed and to keep learning and keep engaging. So be in it for the long haul. And four, let it fuck up your life because it will. Oh, it most definitely will. <laughs> let, it, let it fuck up your theology. Let it complicate your life. It's going to make it really, it's going to make life hard for you. And uh, I think the, the, what's really important, a beautiful way of standing in solidarity is to let it make your life become complicated because our lives are immeasurably complicated. Our lives are hard. I'm having to make the choice right now between do I spend the holidays with my family or do I spend the holidays with my partner? That sucks that I have to make that choice. Little things like that. I mean, it, the fact that this, I mean, this has complicated my life in, in just horrible ways and in beautiful ways. And if you really want to stand in solidarity with the LGBT community, don't stand at a safe distance. Let it destroy your life. Yeah. Let it upend everything. Absolutely. I mean, because and, and keep in mind that coming out stories and those complications are as diverse as the people who have them. Yes. Uh, the very difference between Stephen and I is... The, there's a similarity and there's a difference. Both of our families are not affirming. Yes. But mine have made a turn that I never thought they would make, where the, when it comes to a partner and holidays and things like that, they have said, listen, as long as it's somebody that's good to you and that that is, you know, da, 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 they're welcome with us. Yeah. We may not agree. We may not be able to fully understand but we, we because they are a part of you they'll be a part of us yeah and not every family is like that yeah and especially so i would say one of the thing practical things you could do right now again i don't know when this is going to air but as of this taping it's right before the holidays yeah on the holidays my, you might you probably can't do it on the actual holiday but make the effort to check in with yes. your lgbt Absolutely. Uh, friend, family member. It can be a dark time for us. It can be a dark time. Yeah. You know, so another thing that comes to mind is it's... So I I experienced this with the issue over... Um, with with uh, white supremacy and, and the systemic racism in our country, where, you know, for a very long time, because I do come from a very privileged white background, I would instant, I would have this gut reaction of getting very defensive whenever criticisms of white people would come up. And, you know, I was very fragile in that way. And, and I eventually got over that. And I understood that it wasn't personal. And here's the thing, even if it is personal, I still need to hear it. Even if it is about my morality, even if it is about my own biases, I still need to hear it. 
and not be defensive. So whether it's personal or not personal, when it comes to when when you hear something from LGBT people that just makes you want to shut down, really resist that impulse. Even even if at the end of the day you think it's wrong, even if at the end of the day you come to a different conclusion, if something is if something from the LGBT community is tempting you to shut down or feel defensive, uh, really really resist that impulse because at the end of the day that's shutting you down from learning. Period. So that's uh, just just don't shut down. Lean in. Ask questions. What do you mean by that? Uh, reflect back. So what I'm hearing is in, replace replace outrage with curiosity. Replace shutdown with curiosity. Yeah, that that's yeah. what I would recommend. And 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 I'm sure that that I will have more ideas later after this recording. But that's what's coming to mind. And right also. Now. Mm-hmm because I know this from our mutual friend, Justin Bryant, be prepared for people to come for you. Yeah, be, be prepared for people to be offended by what you say. As a matter of fact, they're probably, Lord help me, to say this right and not to offend people that I don't mean to. <laughs> Nothing can ever replace the pain and suffering that we as LGBT people go through on a daily basis. Yeah. But on an intellectual and theological, that kind of level. Be prepared for people to come at you as an ally more vehement yes. than they will come to an LGBT person. For example, mm-hmm. we'll, we use the, the thing of, of race. A lot of times, white supremacist people will say things about other races to other white people that they will not say to a person of another race's face. Exactly. So, you, in this situation, are the other white person. Yes. And you'll be seen as a traitor. (laughs) Exactly. And so, you might experience difficulty that I haven't experienced for years because no one you know, gives me homophobic shit. They know better. But you might be seen as a traitor. You might be attacked, and that will be very hard. And I will say, as a gay person, know that your suffering is real. It's different. And I know that there are pe- there are people in the LGBT community that would <laughs> uh, maybe scoff at the word suffering in that situation. But it is real. It is authentic. And, you know, you're going to have to deal with some crap. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I talked to Justin about this because he, you know, he he's in Charleston and and he's in a really really difficult situation there and he gets attacked constantly. I mean, people just do not give him a break for um, you know, his theological views and for those who don't know, Justin is my assistant and he does all the graphics for the show and he's the co-host for House of Heretics. Wonderful, and wonderful person. Have, to get have mutually adopted him. Yes, our, he is he is our child. Um I'm the mama by the way. <laughs> but, you know, I he, he's just been really struggling and uh I think he's doing better now, but it's been hard. And, you know, I told him Okay, look, I am systemically definitely more oppressed than you are. As a people group, I am more I I I am I have less rights than you. And and I've been a, probably abused more than you. But at the same time, right now you are suffering more than I am because you are getting attacked in a way that I'm not. You have a greater level of emotional suffering that than I do right now. So recognizing the nuances of oppression, recognizing the nuance of suffering, I think that's really important. So anyway, we let's let's move on. Okay, I'm going to switch the order of these questions because I think this last one's going to be quicker to answer. Okay, and it and it's okay that if we go a bit over, okay. we're we're at an hour this, here, and I think from, we'll have time for another show yeah, after that. This is from Preston. 
These last two questions are both from Preston. Okay. Was faith a hindrance to queer friendship slash dating? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Simple answer, yes. And not only was it a hindrance to queer friendships and dating, I think it encouraged me into a life of unhealthy promiscuity. So, you know, I'm not going to bash promiscuity. I'm not into, you know, slut shaming and all that. Um, it wasn't for me. The, I can tell you that much. Yeah, the bar, the you know, really the the I, I'll I'll get so much heat for this. I am very traditional and boring in my personal sexual ethic. I'm very monogamous. I seem to be wired for it, and I'm happiest. You know, I've only had sex with one person for the past four years, which is kind of amazing given my record. <laughs> I've had sex with a lot of people and but it, it, I'm happier this way but really there are there are other people it, it, I just leave the door open for other people to live the life that they feel like they need to live and so this isn't slut shaming at all but for me my my promiscuity was compulsive and dangerous and unhealthy. And I really feel like my theology, my Christian upbringing pushed me into that. It, because here's the thing, uh, in, a, in kind of a twisted logic, in a twisted way, if you believe that gay relationships are sinful... Then we might as well just live it up, huh? Well, not only that, a committed, healthy relationship with another man is a conscious and willful, long-lasting life of sin. That is worse, that you are committing yourself to a premeditated, deliberate thing that you have to work on day after day. That is deeply sinful, if you believe that homosexuality is sinful. What's worse? so warped, isn't it? Isn't it warped? And so, and I and I didn't become aware of this until later, you know, I didn't become aware of this, that this is what was actually going on. But if you believe that homosexuality is sinful, isn't it better to just have a one-night stand? You can repent of it, try to do better next time. However until, many you have. However many you have, and until you fuck up the next time, until you, you practice, you know, dangerous sex the next time or until you you know and and is that not healthier from a spiritual perspective is that not safer from a moral perspective from an eternal perspective is it isn't that better to just have it be a one-time thing that you aren't committing to rather than a long lasting safe monogamous mutually respectful relationship that you have to work on that's premeditated that's what it led me into and that is it was it's deeply deeply destructive there's a you know i've and, and then you know so i eventually realized when i when i met john because we were you know sexually active from the get go <laughs> i hope john doesn't mind me sharing all i bet i bet he wouldn't but we were sexually active from the get go but it was safe and loving and mutually respectful and secure. And I realized, you know what? This is a progression of redemption. The fact that I was going from unhealthy, dangerous sex. And and I don't, I mean, I'm I was always very safe. I always practiced safe sex. It emotionally wasn't safe for me. And so when I say dangerous sex, that's what I mean. It was it was very emotionally volatile and very compulsive. And and it really tore me up. But realizing, okay, I now have this very safe person who I'm committed to, that is a progression of health and redemption. And I just had to step back and look at it objectively and say, this is good. This is healthy. This is safe. This is this is secure. And um, so moral of the story, yes. It Not only did 
um, my non-affirming theology shut down gay dating, it also shut down male friendships in general. It, it made male friendships fraught. Now, I have so many male friendships with straight guys. Matt Langston, owner of Rock Candy Recordings, and he he produces this show and host of Eleven D Life and frontman of Eleven D Seven. He's one of my very, very, very best friends. And I now have a ton of straight friends, and I was never able to have those friendships beforehand. Um, I think because I was so afraid of my sexuality, so afraid of of any kind of of masculine intimacy be it purely platonic or sexual indeed i would say in my situation as a late a much late bloomer i've only been out for maybe six months it's been a big year for you oh 2018 was a big year on so many levels welcome welcome out of the closet and honestly i think and i'm gonna be you know, now that I, I sit and think about it, seeing you and John together is a lot of what gave me the courage mm. to to come to terms, to see it as a good thing. And because I saw you before, and then I saw, I've seen you post, pre-John and post-John. Yeah. And the difference is is striking. It's the difference between night and day. It really is. Uh, of night really and day. Is. And, you know, it's, and I've, you know, like you did coming out, I had uh, my own promiscuous set and uh, I actually said I went to a I was born and raised Wesleyan Holiness Pentecostal and uh, I went to a Wesleyan Holiness Pentecostal seminary and I said that I needed to get a t-shirt made that said I put the hoe in holiness (laughs) (laughs) I still think you need to make that t-shirt and uh, I'd wear it 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 definitely makes I've seen what I've got to the point now theologically in things where you know I'm not in a committed relationship yet Mm, yeah, and I'm just now very uh, early coming out of that stage of a lot of one night stands that I've lived to regret. Yeah, and it I'm actually come to the point now where I look at those things and I don't see them as me being promiscuous. Mm. I see them as learning what I needed to learn about sex. Exactly. Getting getting it out of your system, you know, learning about it, making learning up for lost time. Well, because I had no point of reference before. Exactly. The talk that my mother gave me was about what happened to girls when they went through puberty. I knew nothing about even... <laughs> really? Uh, nothing about heterosexual sex, let alone gay sex. You know, and, you know, you blew my mind when you opened the door to tell me that, you know, gay male sex wasn't all about the anal stuff. <laughs> you know... <laughs> Yes, and but and it was it's been a process of learning of what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable. Um, to the point now that I'm going to say because of that stage in life, I am prepared. Yeah, for a committed relationship. Yeah, because I know, and that I think that's ultimately going to keep me from having to go through some of the pitfalls. Yeah. Of trying to figure, not just figure out how a relationship works, but also figuring out how sex works. Yeah, you know, me too, actually. I feel like I don't regret it at all. You know, I I feel like it became unhealthy at times, very unhealthy mm-hmm. at certain times. But I feel like it was a weirdly necessary process. And, you know, so, yeah, for anyone listening who's on the verge of 
of experience of of becoming sexually active or who has been just be safe just use safe sex get tested get tested periodic get tested every three months find you a friend who can go with you because the first time i went and got tested by the grace of the good lord on high yes i found a place that did the rapid results yes where, because if I'd have had to wait three to five days to get those test results oh, back, I would have died. It's so stressful. But oh even my God. then, that's what I had to do. But even then, that was the longest twenty minutes of my life, and I was by myself. Yeah. And if I had it to do over again, find you somebody. If you are local in the Western North Carolina area, call me. Yep. Facebook. I w- I'm more than willing to go with somebody. Absolutely. Me too. You know, if you're if you're in Western North Carolina, give me a call. Shoot me a text. I'd and be in happy most places, you. there are clinics that will do it completely free of charge. Absolutely. Uh, and but I will get my question in here really quick. Okay. Since we started the subject. Yes. What is something about gay sex that you wish somebody had told you or warned you about going in? Okay. Um. Listeners under the age of 16, please tune out. (laughs) What regarding gay sex I wish someone had told me? I think one of the things that I wish people had told me was that it's okay. Like that almost brings tears. Like it's okay. That almost it's brings okay. Tears. It's it's okay. We're sexual beings. It's natural. It's natural. We have sex. unless it's not. Unless it's not. Unless you know you're you on know an ace or arrow. Yeah, exactly. Spectrum, and that's okay too. And that's great. But but for a lot of us, it's to- It's natural. We just we're human beings. We just have sex. It's fine. There's no such thing as virginity. I think virginity is a fake thing. I think we are just sexual and it's fine and it's okay to explore it's okay for it to be fun like sex is fun it's it's okay it's just it's okay yeah, it's the first just time okay. is going to be a coin toss it's either going to be really great or it's not going to be <laughs> yes uh, exactly my first experience happened to be really really wonderful yeah uh, but i've mine heard too. other stories mine too <laughs> where it wasn't so great you know and yeah you know what that like I said, that almost brought a tear. It's like just somebody saying that it's okay. I mean, nobody is probably more entrenched. I'm sure there are people more entrenched, but in my particular case, impurity culture, holiness. <laughs> impurity. It's purity culture, impure, not impurity culture. You know, but Did I say impurity? <laughs> you did say impurity culture. I think what I meant to say is my words ran together. I said entrenched in purity yes, culture. Yes, okay. Okay, but it really is impurity culture because it's all talk about what you're not supposed to do. Yeah. And after that first time, the earth didn't move. Yeah. Lightning didn't strike. A hurricane uh, didn't hit. A hurricane didn't hit. I didn't uh, feel dirty or yeah, bad. Exactly. I just felt normal. Because guess what? It is normal. It is normal. You know, here's here's the other thing that, oh, God damn it. Where did it go? Um, While you're retrieving yes, it. Yes, keep talking. I will I'll, say that... As a again, as a late bloomer, as guys, I didn't have my first kiss until I was thirty years old. And right. I'm, I mean, I'm thirty now with a guy or a girl. Yeah. So the first time I kissed a boy was the first time we did other stuff. You're right. And you know, it. Lord have mercy. Nobody in my family can ever hear this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this must be. This must go into the darkest parts of the web. Uh, but uh, you know, so there was a lot of firsts. Yeah. In that first time, it was a true first time, and um, 
just the naturalness of it. You know, like all the stories you hear about the heterosexual people. It's like, it's like the the first kiss, wanting to kiss, wanting to kiss a girl or a boy. You know, and that having that first kiss and how natural that is to to think somebody's attractive to want to kiss that person to want to do other stuff with that person to eventually want to you know have a family and be a partnership that that even though that for us that's for a member of the same sex Mm -hmm. it feels just as natural yeah as it would for a heterosexual just as normal just as natural you know okay so here's here's actually what i was going to say earlier um i read an article early on and i forget where it was but the 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 author made this really great point where she said is your sex ethical we have this assumption that marriage makes sex ethical and that isn't always true married rape is a thing married rape is a thing non-consensual sex is a thing abuse is a thing within marriage and out of marriage and we have this idea that the ring on the finger does not imply consent exactly and so we have this idea that that the container suddenly makes it okay. When she said we have to start thinking more about is our sex itself ethical? Is it consensual? Is it kind? Is it respectful? Is it safe? Is it ethical? And that was really helpful for me to kind of start to reframe it. Reframe the ethics of sex outside of the container which does matter for a lot of people. And we don't have to discount that at all. Uh, You know, we don't have to totally throw out the container, but is the sex itself ethical? And asking myself that question was a really important step forward for me. So also take a shower. Yes. Take a shower. Someone's going to be up close with your body. Be clean. Take a shower. If you're going to have anal sex, you need to douche. Um, Those nether regions do get body odor just like your underarms do. Exactly. You you need to be clean because someone is going to be very up close with your body. And and so that comes to the respect bit. Respect your partner enough to take a shower. And that unless can, they like it, unless they like you, grody, unless they you know, un- unless that's a thing. But it has to be communicated beforehand. So please take <laughs> take a shower. That's yeah. all I'll say. <laughs> well, yeah, and two, you know, going with bodies and stuff. <clears throat> don't do anything that's going to make you uncomfortable. You know. Yes. And it's okay. It's okay to say no. It's okay exactly. to say I'm not comfortable with that. Exactly. If they if they get up and leave, I've had that happen. Mm-hmm. If they get up and leave, they get up and leave. You know, and that's not to exactly. Don't feel ashamed of that. Don't. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. All right. Last well, are question. we on to the last question? The last question. All right. Awesome. Actually, I'm glad I, I reversed this order because it kind of flows more natural. Good. When did identifying as a gay? Oh. <laughs> Say it more into the mic. When did identifying as gay and a person of faith not feel like a burden to you anymore? It felt like it was no longer a burden when after I'd gotten together with John and we just started living life, you know, and and it just started taking up less bandwidth for me. And, And I, you know, I moved from theoretical to lived experience and then I was just free to be a normal human being. For me, because I am still single. But if anybody is out there, call, <laughs> call me. Contact. Please contact. Contact Sacred Tension <laughs> at stephenbradfordlong.com. Send me an email and I will forward your message to Donald. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, I'm 30 years old. I'm a Pisces. It's like, you know, whatever. Uh, but for me, it was kind of my things, since we're talking about faith, spiritually, that's been my shtick here lately, is the simpler it is, the more spiritual it is. Mm. So, 
when I reduced my faith to the lowest common denominator, yeah, and it was it came down to two things. It came down to one basic question: hmm. Is God cruel? Mm. You know, and nothing in my background is as traumatizing and anxiety-inducing as the evangelical upbringing can be. I think one of the things that was emphasized enough, thank God, was that of all things that God is, cruel is not one of them. Absolutely. So my faith no longer became a burden when I realized no matter what your stance theologically is, we all come down to that same point that God is love and God is not cruel. Mm. Therefore, if I feel like God is insisting that I live in a way that is damaging to me, that hurts me, that's cruelty. And yes, because like Stephen said with side A and side B, most people theologically are at the point now where we know that an orientation cannot be changed. So, for God to create me in such a way with something that I cannot help mm. and then expect me to live my life struggling with it, not to live it out, that's cruelty. Mm. And God cannot be cruel. So for me to be gay ultimately has to mean that I'm created that way and that God calls it good because that's just it. So for me, it didn't become a burden when I realized that no matter what anybody says or what anybody thinks, I'm choosing to believe that I'm created in the image of my creator as a gay man. Mm. And that that is part of God's diverse creation, and he calls it good, and nobody is going to convince me of it otherwise, because yeah. this is my lived experience. Yeah. And gosh darn, those Pentecostals... <laughs> are all about that lived that, experience. That teaches you that you can trust your experience. Yes. You know, there you go. It's not a burden. My faith is not a burden anymore, and I'm currently working on everybody else's faith around me not being a burden either. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> You I know. I think that's a great note to end on. Well, Donald, this has been lovely. Thank you so much. Anytime. So uh, thank you for listening, and hopefully we'll be doing more of these Q&A episodes down the road. Let me know if you enjoyed this, and I'll do more of them. And if you want to become a patron, please do so. That is one of the most tangible ways in which you can support this show and my work. Go to stephenbradfordlong.no. Not Stephen Bradford Long. I mean, you can go to Stephen Bradford Long too. Go to uh, patreon.com forward, sl forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar a month or $5 a month. You will get a separate patrons only podcast. You will help to continue to grow this show and make it more sustainable so I don't totally burn out because it's a lot of work. And as usual, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.